What's up, party people? You know one of the worst things about being a self-employed performer? That's right, it's your tax. If you're sick and tired of collecting all your receipts and guessing your way through your tax rebate, well, I know the people that can remove the stress and make it as simple as five, six, seven, eight. That's right, it's Theat Accounts. They're an accounting company that specialize in working with performers. So they know all the things that we can claim back and it's so simple. You upload your invoices and bank statements to their website and they do all the work for you. It's cheap, it's easy, and once you try it, I guarantee you will not regret it. It has changed my tax life. Just email info at theataccounts.co.uk. That's theat, T-H-E-A-T, accounts. So again, that's info at theataccounts.co.uk. Make sure you tell them you're from the Ins and Outs podcast and you'll get some five-star VIP treatment. You will get treated like a king. Honestly, they've changed my life. They've made it so much easier. They've removed the stress from tax and they can do the same for you. Boom. What's up guys? Recently I've been working with an incredible company called Quiet Media. Quiet Media create beautiful video reels, vocal reels, self-tapes, music videos and many, many more. So if you're looking to capture your idea on a video or via audio, then Quiet Media is for you. Go to quietmedia.co.uk or find them on Instagram at quiet underscore media. That's quietmedia.co.uk or at quiet underscore media. Also, don't forget to tell them that you're from the Ins and Outs podcast to receive that special luxury treatment. I promise you, you will not regret investing in this company to help you capture your imagination or your creativity. That's quietmedia.co.uk. Pow! The Ins and Outs podcast with your host, Kane Silver. What's up? everybody happy new year happy 2021 how are we all feeling did we all party hard in self-isolation on new year's um i hope you all had a wonderful christmas and a wonderful new year we started the new year off with a bang we have a very special guest um when i first started podcasting i said i had two two people who were my dream guests at the time uh, in the dance industry, and it was Marty Gadelka, and it was today's one, Brian Freeman. Uh, I'm sure you all know who Brian is. If you don't, you should. He's worked with Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Britney, Bieber, Usher, Beyonce, Rihanna, Prince, Mariah Carey, Nicole Scherzinger, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, we talk about a lot in this episode. Talk a bit about his career, his celebrity status in the UK his time in the jungle, what it's like being a choreographer and a creative director, what it was like being a dancer, what it's like being a dancer now in social media era, especially over these COVID times, we go in. Um, I had a great time talking to Brian. I'm very, very grateful for his time, and I hope you all enjoy this podcast. But before we get into that, a few little ads for you all. Um, at the moment, I'm running the Ins and Outs Mentorship Program for the month of January online. By the time this is released, the first week will have already been done. You're more than welcome to join for the rest of the month. Just message me on Instagram and we'll figure out a way for you to get in. Um, also, coming up 2021, 
I have a new project that I'm starting with uh, the incredible Sam Fleet, my good friend. It is called The Gentleman's Club. If you go on Instagram and search The Gentleman's Club UK, yeah, at The Gentleman's Club UK, you can stay informed for all information there, I guess. That's where you need to be to know more about it. Uh, the name should tell you quite a bit. It's, a, a, I guess, a club or a program catered for the gentleman. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested, please check it out. Meanwhile, here is the incredible Brian Freeman. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. This is very exciting for me. So uh, when I first started my podcast, my friend Simeon, we were on a podcast and he said, what to me, he asked me a question, who are your dream people to have on? And I said, from the dance industry, it was you and Marty Kadalka. So this is fulfilling it. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And a happy new year. Happy new year to you as well. It's uh, off to quite a bang. <laughs> are you guys still in lockdown? Yes, we are. Our lockdown is a joke in Los Angeles, which um, I'm sure you can tell by the news and how our numbers are. I mean, it it pretty much says it all. You know, we're told to stay at home, yet everything is still open. So, I mean, obviously amusement parks and things like that, movie theaters are all closed, but you can go shopping and you can dine outside and all of these things that just pull people out of the house are still active. So I'm a huge advocate for shut everything down. I know that that's not great for business, but it's great for us to stay alive and stop killing people. So mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy. I, I'm locking myself away and yeah. doing everything I can to protect myself and my family. And Is it just so you, Danny, and the pups? It is. Well, we've got a bubble that we quarantine with um, two of my close friends and uh, Danny and my puppies and my mom and dad are in a different state, but we drive to their house and spend time with them because they don't see anyone. So yeah. we've got a tight knit group that, of people that we see, so we're not completely alone, but within our bubble, um, we all don't go outside of our bubble and we don't do things. So we're yeah. safe. No one in our bubble has, has been um, infected. So I feel really good that we're doing the right thing. But obviously I know a lot of people who have uh, had the virus and a lot of people who have passed from the virus. Mm. Uh, so it's real as can be. You're in yeah. London, right? Uh, I live just outside. I live like an hour out of London in Swindon, where I think you've been Swindon before to Wilkes Academy. Yeah. So Are I live you on lockdown too, 100 percent? Or uh, we've just gone into like a tier because I'm just on the outside. We're, we we've got a tier system from like one to four, and each tier has different rules. Mm -hmm. But it, I feel like it's more confusing because it's like we're just on the edge of a tier, so it's slightly different to the the town next to, across to us. So it's all a bit confusing. Yeah, I a friend of mine in London shared a video with me maybe a week or so ago, and it was in Covent Garden, and it was packed with people, and no one had masks on. Dude, and Christmas shopping was crazy. And I was just dumbfounded with 
that. I, I don't understand. I mean, I get it in America that what Trump has done <laughs> here and his supporters think that you don't have to wear a mask and it doesn't really protect you. But I didn't think that it was just as bad in the UK. Yeah, I think this the the challenging thing is the conflicting messages, you mm -hmm. know, like uh, it's and I guess it's kind of the same as what you guys out there, but it's a bit different. Like one minute we've been told here, you know, complete lockdown, don't leave the house for five months. And then it's like everyone go and eat out half price. And then it's like you did the wrong things. You're in lockdown again because you guys took advantage of the opportunity we gave you. It, it's very confusing. Yeah, I think if everyone would just not worry about the press and not worry about the news and, and not listen to anything, but just try and be rational with mm. it and know that if we protect ourselves and the less we are around people and the less we touch and the less we communicate with masks off and come into contact people with masks off, that we wouldn't be spreading germs. It's like, I it's feel like... It makes sense, but it, people just don't believe it. And friends of mine don't believe it. It's crazy. You know, we're, we're so divided right now as a world. Mm. You know, people who you think that you are like-minded with, you're realizing, wow, we are very different. And you start questioning, can I really be friends with you? And um, this is just such a pivotal year. Mm. And I say year, but the year is over. Yeah, it just began, essentially. Someone told me something really funny yesterday. Um, a friend of mine said, look, 2020, she turned 21. She's an adult now. She's getting real wild. I was like, <laughs> You're right. We yeah. all thought it was going to be better, but she's reckless now. Well, I'm super torn because, like, obviously I want everyone to be safe and I'll do all the precautionary measures to keep everyone safe. But it's just so difficult because I'm seeing so many of my friends like having their cars repossessed where like they're not earning any money and like people are leaving their homes and like I know it's probably even worse in LA because at least our government are trying to like try and defend for us a little bit more in the arts but don't you guys get like a $600 subs well that's what is happening that is the latest that we're supposed to get 600 the stimulus check I have not received that check yet but in LA yeah, no. Uh, what I, do you live in? 600 bucks is getting you nothing. 600 does nothing. And But the thing <laughs> at this point, 50, I will accept. <laughs> I, <laughs> we all just need money to survive. There isn't, I mean, yeah, I'm sure that there are people who have this nest egg of money, you know, the super rich and super wealthy. And it's funny, um, people think they know people's finances. Like, I am struggling struggling and I've had a really successful career in life, but you take a year and you have your mortgage for your house. Yeah, and you, your, your bills I, don't change. I have multiple mortgages because I, I own other homes and there's no rent being paid. There's no mortgages being paid. So your money that you thought you had, that lasted for a second in the beginning mm -hmm. of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden it's the hustle and what can we do to earn money during this time, how can we stay afloat? And I think everyone is barely scraping by. <clears throat> and then some people aren't scraping by and they're losing things and they're losing everything. I've seen so many people here in Los Angeles, professional dancers, choreographers, people in the entertainment industry, makeup artists, wardrobe, all these people who have moved 
They've left. They've gone home to live with their family. Friends of mine in New York, who you would never think would leave the city, are away and living with a relative in a small town. Mm. Something they never thought they would do. So we've all shifted. Especially especially out there, like, you know what it's like when you receive uh, your your pay slip and you look at it and you go, okay, I've lost 40%. Yeah. And then, you know, you're not getting anything back for it. Like here, they do it on what we pay in tax. They give us 80% of it back. So it kind of balances. But out there, like, I remember when I used to get a check from a video and I'd be like, where's the other half? You know, like, that's it. We lose money. Um, You know, we have to pay our union dues and then you pay your agency fee and then your taxes get taken out. And then if you have a manager, your manager takes their cut. And then on top of that, if you are working with a business manager who manages your finances or a financial advisor, they take their cut and you're left, you you know, you did all of this work and you're left with this tiny little sum of money. Like 20%. Right now, that sum, what we're getting paid for industry work, if we ever are lucky enough to get an industry job during this time, the fee is so much smaller. Mm. Our teaching fee is so much smaller if we're on a convention. If we teach a Zoom class, we're making the smallest portion of what we usually would make for teaching. So then you take that all away, you pay your assistance, and you're left with virtually nothing. And Mm. your bills haven't changed. No one's mortgages are lessened, you know, no one is asking or or giving you any sort of padding or comfort. Your phone bill is the same, your utilities are the same, your mortgage is the same, your car payment's the same, your insurance is the same, your health insurance, your car insurance. I mean, there's a lot yeah. to think about. And I think everyone is in this stressful place right now of just hoping and wishing this stops and goes away and that there can be some sort of change and we'll get back to a semblance of normal, whatever normal is. Um, but yeah, we're counting down the days. I was highly optimistic that 2021 was going to be, <laughs> but that would be foolish to think that things are just going to get better. I feel like it's not going to happen overnight. We've got another year. I, I want to just say that Christmas 2021, maybe we'll all be celebrating yeah, uh, maybe, hopefully. That's that's my hope. That's an optimistic one, but I'm down. I'm with it. I mean, a year. Come on. We've got to be. It's not a year, is it? It's, it's a year and nine months. Yeah. Yep. But fingers crossed. Have you done any work over this period? Have you been fortunate to get anything? I know lots of people are struggling. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> I've always been a self-proclaimed hustler, like... I do what needs to be done. And I've always been the type that is bored with whatever I'm doing at that moment. And I wish that I was not that way. I wish that I could be content. I see so many friends of mine who just stayed the path on that one thing that they were working on, that one thing that they were doing, and it flourished into something really beautiful. But I'm antsy, and that's just my nature, and I'm doing something, and I see something else over there that looks fun, and I go and I jump into that. I've sort of always been a jack of all trades. And I do something successful, and I'm not fulfilled in it anymore, and I'll quit, and I'll leave that job and go to something else, to my detriment, I'm sure. Um, But because of that, I was able to pivot quickly because that's my nature. And I figured out how to work in the virtual realm. And I put myself on every single 
online I, platform. And I am so grateful to all of those platforms because they provided such an outlet for me to be able to teach. Make money, yes. It's again, it's not the type of money that we make in our normal world, but like I said before, I'm grateful to get something beats nothing at this point. So these companies, T Millie, Tim Milgram, T Millie TV, he was the first person and CLI studios. Um, those are the first ones that I went and worked with. And then Steezy studios hit me up and I've got programs on all three of those platforms and then countless zoom classes and virtual events that have gone on my agency msa they've brought a lot of fun stuff to me uh, in that world my manager brooklyn she's brought a lot to me virtually i taught a birthday party yes <laughs> a wealthy family they had me teach a zoom birthday party it was a really cool experience because they created an original song that was comprised of all of this woman's experiences in her life. And they gave me the song and said, choreograph a fun hip hop dance to this. And so we did, and it ended up being one of the more fun experiences I've had because I was teaching non-dancers on a Zoom and it was a surprise to them. So I've done some really unusual things. Um, I've taught a lot of virtual conventions. My event Radix that I teach on, mm -hmm. we did a virtual national event, which that was really great because I got to touch my students that I hadn't seen in so long virtually. Um, cause you know, I would see them week every weekend throughout the year. So that was great. I've done, um, a little bit of industry work. I was right before the pandemic started, I was working with an artist, Melanie Martinez, and she was on tour. I directed the tour with her and the tour was up and running and they just had to stop, which was devastating. Luckily they had a little run before they got shut down but we've done some stuff together we did a global stream which we got to create a live concert with no audience obviously but um that was a fun experience to do being tested every three days so that we could work in that small bubble that we were working together in uh shot a video with her but besides that i have not left the house for industry work everything i've done has been in my house at home i, I did a concept video um, where I did leave and work with some dancers. And that was my first time stepping into the dance studio with dancers. And it was a different experience having to be masked up and not getting to really connect um, the way that you normally would, you know, not mm -hmm. giving hugs when you walk in. Um, it's It's been a social experiment. Yeah. That is I thought the weirdest thing for me about all of this is like everything that in our career of what we do is so social, right? Like, we're never really on our own. Like we're always in a room of people teaching or rehearsals or you're speaking to different people and dance is such a social thing, you know, social dance where it came. And it's like the whole social side has been stripped away, but like being able to find the, I guess the the willpower and the being able to motivate yourself to drive through and still do it, you know, it's that's been the most challenging part for me, but also the most rewarding when you see the effects that it has on other people that, like people in especially your position as like a leader in the industry being able to go no guys we can do this let's all do a class on zoom and motivating other people yeah. i bet it's so fulfilling that was, right that was my favorite i did one event and this was right in the beginning of quarantine time i did a video master class teaching slave for you choreography and that was for me 
the most fun thing I did, A, because I was trying to figure out what I could do to give back because I did a portion of my proceeds. I uh, donated them to healthcare workers mm -hmm. because at that point, this was when the pandemic was raging in the beginning and hospitals were overflowing. Frontline workers were putting their lives at risk. And I'm sitting here like, well, I don't really have money to donate to them because I'm trying to pay my bills. What can I do to figure out how I can give something to them? And that was like the only thing I've never done that I knew could bring a draw in. Um, Slave for You has always been something that people always ask for a tutorial and if I could ever teach it. And I was like, you know what, now is the time. And I discovered this platform called Veeps where essentially you have your own live concert and they had never done anything in the dance realm before. So I teamed up with them, created this event where people could buy tickets and it was eligible to access for three days straight. Um, oh, that's dope. Got together the original dancers from the music video and Wade Robson who choreographed it with me. Obviously we weren't together, so I was able to get them on FaceTime and uh, Maite Garcia, who helped us with the belly dancing. She coached us on how to belly dance so that we could choreograph that part. So I got all of us together and I thought it would be really fun for Britney's fans to be able to learn more about the process and to learn the choreography. And it was, we had thousands of people sign up for this class and I was able to donate money. So I felt like I did my part and gave back. And then seeing everyone posting their videos of them doing the choreography was amazing. Um, oh sorry. my God, look how big he is. <laughs> he just really wants to get in on this. This is my, my little puppy Tova. Um, <laughs> We've got we got two quarantine puppies and um, I know that well they're not puppies anymore. No, I mean she's only she's ten and a half months now, so they're still no, but she was tiny. Oh no, they yeah I don't know where Caruso, my other one is. He doesn't care about me, uh, <laughs> but she really wants to be in on this. And she's knocking everything over around. Tova, go away. But um, that like seeing everyone post their choreography, that was one of those moments where I was like, okay we are all connected globally everyone and it i'm jumping all over the place right now because i'm remembering how that felt knowing that everyone in the world was literally in the same boat this is the first time i had ever felt so connected to people all around the world and um it was just great that we were doing something together and that was the beginning of the pandemic and i was like yay we're fighting this we're going to come back strong. And then all of a sudden, America just blows up in riots and BLM starts uh, hitting the surface after George Floyd was murdered. And um, just recounting what went down in 2020, it's just mind blowing. Like and you couldn't make that a film. You couldn't. And because it would have to be 10 films <laughs> to cover everything that went down. But it's been exhausting and it's crazy, but it had to happen. Mm. And that's the part that um, is the most confusing and exciting about it all is that we needed this. We mm. needed this to take a look at ourselves. Obviously we don't need people to die, but we needed to, hey, you guys, <laughs> my dogs are literally batshit crazy <laughs> i saw the fear on your face as that noise happened you're like, well, oh, like shit. don't knock the computer over <laughs> we're <laughs> electronics and we're in a pandemic uh, <laughs> but 
It needed to happen because we're taking a look at our hygiene. We're taking a look at our security. We're taking a look at how understaffed we are in the healthcare departments. We're taking a look at um, racial injustice. And it's just, it needed to be done. It really needed to be done. And how naive so many of us were and how we take our privilege for granted. And as that was all going on after George Floyd was murdered, I'm sitting here looking at my social media and I'm disgusted at myself by what I'm posting. I'm like, this is just, it's trivial. All the stuff that we worry about and are thinking about and are doing with our lives while people are having real issues. Mm. So I turned my platform into just, I, I, I never intended to be this warrior for racial injustice, but I was like, I cannot post a selfie or another dance video because it will make me sick. Mm-hmm. And everything turned to how I could help fight with that cause. And it's not even about a fight, it's just spreading awareness mm-hmm. and just knowing that you're an ally and what you can do as an ally. Um, and it's not just America. Like oh, race, it's, it's all over it's the world, you know. Everywhere, UK. I mean, it. I don't want to say it's just as bad, but well, it's just as bad. Just as bad. So, um, that was another part of my year. I, I feel like we've gone through so many waves of things that have gone on. You know, it started mm-hmm. about. I remember back when it first started. I went worst case scenario in my mind. I was like, "This is the end of the world." this is it. And I said to my husband, oh yeah. And that was my honeymoon. P.S. Nice. 20th, not knowing we were about to be in a global pandemic and we had to cancel our honeymoon and we got locked away. And it was a a blessing because our dog, she was very old and sick. And I was able to spend the last two months of her life with her at home every day before we lost her. I'm so Um, sorry. So thank you. But that was like a blessing because I travel so much and I don't get to spend as much time with her as I wanted. And then we were able to get our new babies, you know, right after that and raise them and be home with them every day. But I was really paranoid when this first happened, thinking like, this is the end of the world. Like we are going to have to board up our house and protect ourselves. And I said to my husband, should we go get a gun? Am I going to have to like, start hunting for food yeah <laughs> that paranoid because i watched too much tv i watched walking dead and i was like well i'm ready because i've watched all the shows i think i can do this <laughs> dude i i i don't want to out his name on here but we both know this person uh and he started selling his guns off i mean oh like God. anyone want to buy my guns we both know who this person is but i can't obviously out him but i was like this is Crazy. But I was like, no, I'm not, I, I am anti-gun. So how can I want to be going and getting a gun? But you know what? I would be pro-gun if I was living in the early 1800s in a different life. It's just right now I'm not, but I, I do believe that people do have to protect themselves. So I'm so on the fence about that. I just don't think it should be so easy to get a gun. No. Um, but yeah, I went through that. How am I going to protect? Then I went through the whole, how am I going to work? How am I going to help out? Then it went through, how am I going to be an ally? And there's just been all of these waves. And then I went through the, how am I going to better my health? You know, I turned into um, 
like a foodaholic. I was overeating. I was drinking all day, every day. I turned into a pandemic drunk. I've drunk more in the past nine months than I have in my life. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So then I was like, I've got to change this. And I went crazy healthy. I did a 75 day challenge that ended up being 80 days. I lost 30 pounds, which is like two stone, I believe. Um, that tall body was back. <laughs> natched. I was like skinny as I was when I, I was skinnier than I was when I was in my twenties. And that's not, I'm not saying, yay, this is the best thing in the world. Everyone should be skinny. All I'm saying is I was working out like you crazy. healthy eating healthy and I was drinking water and I wasn't drinking alcohol and I felt the best I had ever felt. The way I looked and the numbers on the scale, that was a side effect of the work that I was doing. So, you know, I posted a picture and of course I got torn apart because you can't do anything in this world. I got torn apart for well, body. You, you can't do, you can't do anything in this world when everyone is at home with nothing to do. Yes, that is true. Everyone is out to get someone. Someone. You know, I, I talk about doing my Britney event and they're all saying, you're just trying to be famous and you're stealing her limelight. I'm like, nah, actually, I choreographed that. So it's mine yeah. as much as it is hers. So, <laughs> you know, someone's always there to tear you down. They're tearing, right now, I, I, I won't go on Twitter because they are like hateful to me on Twitter. Because again, I was talking about another work experience that I had and they're calling me a liar and you can't win in this world. And if that's the one thing that I have learned in my wise old age that I am, oh my God, these dogs. <laughs> one thing I've learned, it is that you can't please everyone. And the best thing you can do, no matter how difficult it is, is to ignore it, mm. not to listen to it. Because the second you listen to it, you infect yourself with that negative energy. And we're all human. We are drawn to the fire. Mm. Do you, do, the flame. We want to read it. We want to see it, but it is dangerous. If you could go back, like go back to 16 year old self, when I believe you got your first studio and imagine you had social media now, like, do you feel like your career and your journey yeah. would have been the same? Um, it would have been very different. Uh, I am beyond grateful that I grew up when I did. I, I think having come from a generation where there was no instant gratification, where there was no pluck from obscurity and just handed everything because of a lot of people looking at you, not even being talented, just looking at you. You've got numbers on you. So you're famous now and you're gonna have all of these opportunities dropped in your lap. Not having that meant you had to have a craft. You had to work at your craft. You had to get to the top of your field if you wanted to succeed. And I am super grateful that I grew up like that because it taught me work ethic. It taught me nothing comes for free. Nothing comes without putting in the hard work. So no, I would not change anything. But if tables were turned and, and technology had advanced quicker than it did, and I had social media, my life would be completely different. I would have been a raging superstar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I sit with my friends. <laughs> so good. I sit with my friends and I'm like, could you imagine 
me at whatever age, if I had that, I would have had the millions of followers on these platforms. I would have had the campaigns. I would have been able to put out my fashion line um, like these younger entrepreneur, choreographers, creative directors, directors, people who are in my same position. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously the world loves young. The world loves... Uh, 16, they love 19, they love 22, they love the... They, they expect everyone over the age of 30 to be great because you've it's your job, you're an adult. Yeah, and, and I'm an old man. I'm an old man who is married now. I'm not fun. I'm not cool. <laughs> I'm not out at the clubs and at the parties anymore. That ship has sailed. And I do know that when you're in those worlds and in those realms at that age, that's where the networking happens. That's where the social growth happens. That's where the opportunity comes from. And if you're not in the game playing the game, the game is not coming to you. So, yeah, if I was in my game days and I had that on my side, uh, I would be a billionaire Mm -hmm. (laughs) at this point because all of my merch deals, much like all of my kid students, you know, my Maddie Ziegler's, Jade Chanoth, Sean Liu, Casey Rice, all of them, even looking at people like Paris Goble, all of these people that have these tools in their pocket at this young fruitful age. Mm-hmm. It is incredible that they have that. And I am <clears throat> proud of them for really seizing the day and making the most of it and using it to their advantage because hell, of course I would. <laughs> yeah, But at the same time, it's terrifying, right? Because they've got all these eyes on them. Pressure. And es- especially this year, we've seen it in our industry. Like we've seen famous people, like very high level dancers, Things blow up in their face because they're so exposed, right? And when you're in that position, people want to expose you. Well, they know too much. You can't say anything wrong. You know, I recently, well, in in the pandemic, I did a a masterclass with uh, Charlie D'Amelio, who I didn't know at the time when they asked me to do it. Um, And then I found out that she was a dance convention kid, much like all the kids I teach, except for she was just insanely famous on TikTok. I looked at her, I was like, oh, Charlie, let me look up this girl. Oh my God, she's got over 80 million followers on TikTok. (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. So we're gonna do this little class together. I did a TikTok video with her and the video that day goes up to like 20 something million views on my TikTok. And I went from having like five followers (laughs) to having like 500,000 followers in the day. It was just ridiculous. But I, as I was around her and I was seeing that she was just, like kind of young and shy and introverted with me in the studio as I was teaching her, um, I was thinking, how is this pressure on her? You know, this is a lot for her to have to take in. She was just a normal kid a second ago. And now all of a sudden, everyone in the world knows her. And then I watched not even knowing what was going on, but I started because I worked with her, people tag me in things that she's in. And I started seeing all these evil things that people were saying about her based on like a couple of words that came out of her mouth, which I'm sure were misconstrued. I have no opinion on it because I don't know what went on. So Mm. I have an opinion, but I'm thinking this is just a teenager that millions of people are ripping apart and it's dangerous and it's scary. And I watched the movie, The Social Dilemma. Oh my God. And it made me want to crawl in a hole 
and just hide. It made me want to throw every electronic I have away with the exception of television and streaming shows. I I just, social media is, is scary. It's such a beneficial tool to work, but it is so dangerous and it is damaging Mm-hmm. The, you know, I've got nieces and nephews and a lot of young people around me, including the students that I mentor, and I see how it affects them. I see that they can't carry on conversations the way that I knew kids used to be able to. Mm-hmm. I see that they're socially awkward, that they have social anxiety, that they have this notification <laughs> jitter through their body where they feel this constant need to look at their phone and the constant sense of approval and taking tons of photos to get the right one and using every app under the sun, which I do as well, but I need to because I'm 40. Uh, but like we all are a victim to it we're a victim to it and it just i wish it didn't exist because if it didn't exist we could go back to being normal well if you think of like the child stars that we saw grow up in the past like macaulay culkin and you know like they all end up going through a real rough time in their life you know they all end up having a, a turn even with very little social media at the time when they were stars yeah. and all this protection <clears throat> around them. And then we've got like 15 year olds or 12 year olds with millions of followers, but no one protecting them. Yeah. No management maybe taking care of them and teaching them how to do it. You well, know, and- telling them not to look at newspaper articles. Yeah. It's not, I'm not calling management bad, but it's business and their job as agent manager, yes, to protect your client, but is to help your client succeed. So the more opportunities that are coming in, they're then doing their job and that's successful, but that's also damaging because your clients, there comes a point where they cannot handle all of the pressure and it's too much work. So it's trying to find that balance of how much is too much and when did we lose you know, the human in this young kid Mm. and when are they turning into just a product? Mm. Um, It's really, it's very scary. Um, What was it? Go on, I grew up, I was 13 when I started working in the industry and I was on a TV show when I was a kid and I had, there was a fan club back then and I used to receive fan mail and it wasn't to the point where I was like, well-known like a music artist, but I had my fair share of quote-unquote celebrity as a kid, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't the type that Macaulay Culkin or the type that, you know, when Britney Spears, when she was 16 and she came out, um, it wasn't that level. And I'm really thankful it wasn't because I was able to still have anonymity to an extent, but it's those celebrities those child celebrities that lose their anonymity that's when it gets dangerous Mm. because their childhood is essentially taken away Mm. or their teenage years are taken away and we've seen time and time again that it does take an effect on them yeah what was it like for you being in the limelight at such a young age oh i loved it i wanted it i mean that's what i wanted as a kid i I couldn't get enough of it i didn't get enough of it (laughs) but (laughs) Now I'm looking and I'm grateful that I didn't get enough of it because it could have affected me negatively. So mm. I'm happy that it worked out the way it did. I'm happy that I, it wasn't until I was in my 20s 
and my I started doing stuff on MTV and it was my name was being said and then I started being recognized and then I started doing so you think you can dance and people started recognizing me from TV for that and then I came to the UK and was working on X Factor and uh, blew up through the UK in terms of people actually knowing my name and who I was I was an adult I was, and I knew what I was getting into. So I was in my late twenties and I had the tools to be able to deal with the positive, the negative, everything that was coming along with it. So it still is hard. Mm. It was still hard then to be dragged through the press. You know, mm. when I was from judge as X Factor to creative director, the press was vile to me, like what they were writing about me and to be able to stand there and keep my head up and not crumble. Um, that took a lot, mm. but again, I had the tools to be able to handle that. Um, but for someone young, for someone right now with 12 million followers who is 14 years old, I know they're going through just as much negative as they are positive. Mm. So mm. I only hope that they've got their family with them and that they have therapy. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mental health <clears throat> is no joke. And that's truly the only way to get through this is to seek proper help mm. so that you can uh, navigate. No, and not 100%. Alone. Definitely, especially with the world scenario that we're in, the current yeah, situation. Yeah, throw a pandemic on top of it all. <laughs> Just to add to it, to give you more screen time. <laughs> um, so when you, you had a studio at 16, you'd already been on TV growing up. What made you want to get a studio after already kind of being like a child star? Um, I was bored. Um, <laughs> that, the, the, truth, the truth of the matter, I was dancing at my local dance studio where I started dancing. My mom was a dance teacher and I learned from her before I ever entered into my first class. I, I, I knew the basics mm. of tap dance, I knew Shanae's, I knew pirouettes, I knew the words for everything. And I then wanted to get into it. And she brought me to a studio I saw compete and I loved the kids there. And I was like, I want to dance with them. So she took me to that studio. She had been teaching at the college in town and she ended up moving and started teaching at the studio that I wanted to dance at. And um, after a year of that, I was seen by an agent who signed me and sent me to an audition in LA and I moved and I started working in the year of 1991. I was only 13 years old. And um, I worked a lot as a kid. I worked TV. I worked for Michael Jackson. I worked for Paul Abdul, all the big stars. When I was a little kid, I had worked for them. And then I had turned 16 and I grew and I was not a cute little kid anymore. I was like this tall, gangly, pubescent boy. And I wasn't yeah. booking little kid jobs anymore. And then you're not going to book the, the man jobs. I wasn't booking adult jobs because I was underage. And in America, you had to be 18 to work as an adult. So we had to move back home and it was devastating for me. And I had to go back to normal school. And it was just, I felt like life ended. And my dance teacher back at home uh, who I was choreographing for, I was making up all of our dances and I wasn't getting any credit for it. And I remember that summer, right when I turned 16, I told her, I was like, I need to start getting credit for the choreography that I do. And I want to teach my own class. And she was like, absolutely not. You're 16, you're a kid. And I was like, no, I am ready. And 
So my mom said, you know what, let's open up our own studio. So we did. And it was my studio, essentially. I was I was the director of the company at the studio and I was teaching classes, but it was my mom. She's was the, the name. She was the business. She was the adult, but I still call it my studio. But it was my mom's studio and I played a huge part in it. Um, and I was teaching and it just seemed like the right thing to do because I couldn't have my career in L.A. Now, looking back, it was definitely something that I jumped into that maybe I shouldn't have because then I was locked into this thing and I still wanted my career in LA, which was not too far off. It was like a year and a half away at that point that I would have been old enough. Um, and I ended up starting to go to LA at 17, but right before I was turning 18 and I started being hired on jobs as an adult. Um, and I was then stuck between this back and forth tug of war of being a hometown dance studio teacher directing my company of dancers and living the life in LA and working on professional jobs and I did that for a long time I mean not a long time it feels like a long time it was seven years that that went on oh wow and we ended up deciding to close the studio my mom didn't want the stress of that on her own I didn't want to feel like I always had to go back and do that my kids in Arizona at my studio were resenting me when I would leave them then I would have to come back and win their affections over again and only to leave them so I and I would say every year okay when this group graduates that's when I'll go and then I would fall in love with the next group of kids that would come up underneath them but we ended up closing in 2000 and it was the best thing I could have done because then I was really free to pursue my career in LA. But all of that time that I spent choreographing on my kids in Arizona and training them, that's really when I honed my craft as a choreographer and I learned how to teach. You know, I wasn't billing myself as a master teacher. I wasn't doing workshops. I was teaching in my studio. So by the time I was, you know, in my early 20s, I was able to say, you know what, I'm ready to teach at a studio in LA. I'm ready to go and I'm ready to teach at, uh, there was no millennium at that point. I'm ready to teach at Edge. I'm ready to teach at these studios, Debbie Reynolds, where people want to come and take my classes. And um, during that time, I was working as an assistant choreographer for all the people in LA who I grew up training underneath and learning what it was to be a choreographer and learning about choreographing on set for television, for film, learning about choreography for stage. So I really did the work as an up and coming choreographer. Um, and I worked as a dancer, as an assistant, and as a basic teacher before turning myself into a choreographer, a director, a master teacher. Hmm. Do you, when you look back, did you feel like you were ready to go into that choreography role when it happened? Um, hesitant and scared, but ready because I didn't pursue it. Um, I was asked to take over a job and because the choreographer was busy, they were still on it. They were still the build choreographer, but they said, hey, I want you to assist and choreograph these sections and run the rehearsals when I'm not there. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, was ready to do that because I was 
always the assistant in the rehearsal. And the reason why I wanted that position was because I hated when dancers made mistakes mm-hmm. and I would be next to them and they'd be messing up and we'd do it over and over for them. Yeah, I've, always, I've seen you hate it when dancers make mistakes. <laughs> I've always, I wanted to be the one to tell them, but I didn't have that authority. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm the assistant or I'm the choreographer, I can make sure everyone is doing what they're supposed to do. And yeah. I have the authority to do so. So I was like, yes, I love this position. And I took over on that job and I choreographed some of the sections and uh, the agent of the choreographer who back years before was actually my agent, but at this time she had gone and opened up her own agency. It was Julie McDonald from MSA and MSA was brand new. This was their first year of being open. And Tony Selznick, her partner, was also my agent when I was 13. So I've known them my whole life. And Julie came up to me at this rehearsal and she said, you're really good at this. You need to be doing this. I want to sign you as a choreographer. And I was like, what? (laughs) Yes. And I've seen the stuff that you've done on your dance studio at home because she had judged competitions. She was like, I know what you're capable of. Let's do this. And I was like, okay. Not even thinking that all of my hometown stuff mattered. Mm -hmm. But it essentially was exactly the same thing, just for a different audience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was ready, excited, but I didn't pursue it. It pursued me at that point. And then once it was there, I was full steam ahead and ready to attack it and attack it. I did. It, It just kind of steamrolled. It was like a snowball effect. One job led to the next, led to the next. And then all of a sudden I was working nonstop as a choreographer so when was the decision that you weren't going to be the dancer anymore? Because obviously you danced for everyone by that point, you know, you'd, um, you'd dance for Janet, like you'd done all these, worked with all these incredible artists. How was, hard was it to hang up the the dance boots, I guess? Um, I, my dance boots are not hung up. They mm-hmm. will never be hung up. I will always be a dancer. I'm, I'm not that that person who is like, well, I've retired as a dancer now. Now I'm a choreographer. Now I'm an actor. Um, that's just not me. That's not my style. I don't believe in finalities. Um, I love to dance. I will always go back and dance. I do know that if I am the choreographer or the director on the project, I don't want to dance on my own projects. Generally, there is that one-off. If someone asks me, please be in it, then I will do it. And I'll just figure out how I can do it and still maintain both roles. But I remember doing um, Britney Spears VMAs, Slave for You, and thinking I can't do this anymore because I want to be behind the camera seeing what's going on. Um, So that was sort of, for me, the moment where I was ready to pull the plug. One of the dancers couldn't do a leg of the tour, so I flew to Tokyo and I danced as a dancer in the show that I choreographed. And I was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) My choreography is way too hard. I felt apologetic to all the dancers. I was like, so this is what it feels like to dance in my shows? And I was like, I can't do that, I'm too old. And then um, I did an award show because Brittany wanted me to come and it was uh, me against the music era, Toxic, the NRJ Awards in uh, Cannes in France. And she asked me to dance in that. So I flew and I did that one performance. And I believe that's the last time I danced on stage for her. Uh, And then, you know, if an artist calls that I 
respect and that I admire and love, I will always go back and dance for them. And that's when I danced for Janet. I mm. didn't dance for Janet until after, far ah. after my I went back, um, Gil Doltalau, who was choreographing for Janet, he called me to do, um, was it All Night, Don't Stop, Demita Joe. That was the yeah. album doing. And he said, look, I want you to do the promo tour for this. Are you down? I really want to hire some veteran dancers, myself, Nick Flores, Marcel Wilson, Melanie Benz, Amina Abdul-Jalil, um, Stephanie Kammer, Lori Spazik, Gilbert Saldivar. It was like mm-hmm. the cast. And I was like, of course, <laughs> that sounds like fun. And I've always wanted to dance for Janet. So let's do it. So I did that. And it felt amazing to not be in charge and just to go back and be a dancer and not have to wear all of these hats and take the stress of work home with you. Just show up, learn your eight counts and live your life on stage. So being a dancer is still one of the best jobs ever, I believe. It's much more fun than being a choreographer. That's what I was gonna say. Does it feel now, now you've had all the hats as a creative director as well, like the the stress you have a dancer is, is is a lot right and in the time you're like this is stressful but when you go beyond that you're like oh that was easy being a dancer is the easiest job on the planet it is demanding for me everyone is different for me it was the easiest it was demanding on my body Mm. there's pressure to look a certain way and to perform at a certain level traveling around the world is exhausting alone but then to have to deliver every night and then being away from home so yes there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it that is difficult but for me it was the easiest job because i clock in and i clock out and every other job i do where i'm wearing all these different hats uh creating choreographing, producing, directing, editing, whatever it is, those hats never come off. Those are 24 hour a day jobs. Your emails are never stopping coming in when you're overseeing all the different departments. Um, You're in pre-production for jobs, you're in production, you're in post-production, there's just no end to it. And while those things are going on, you have another job that's on the other side that's coming in. And um, so, and that's when you're only busy and successful. That's not happening. Um, but, uh, being a dancer was the best. And so I, I did love going back and doing that Janet moment. And then he called me again, uh, 20YO when she did another project and I went back again. And at this point I've already done X factor. I've already worked on the other side. I've done everything. Mm. And it felt amazing to go back and just be a dancer. So that is where, you know, it's ego aside. And it was not hard to put ego aside. I loved it. I went and did an episode of Glee as a dancer for my friend, Brooke Lipton. Um, she was like, would you ever? I'm like, of course I would. And I went Thanks. and danced behind Amber Riley and Heather Morris, who I was Heather Morris's dance you teacher. You were her teacher, right? I listened to your podcast with her on their old so, podcast. Um, so like I went and I danced back up for them in an episode of Glee and it was fun. I, I would never say I'm not a dancer and I would never turn my nose down to doing any dance work. And when I watch stuff on TV, I watched the Mariah special and I saw two of my teachers when I was younger, Eddie Garcia and Cinder Che. I saw them dancing in that and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> made me think i'm like should i hit up my dance agent because i still have a dance agent they just don't think um i'm like should i hit up my dance agent and tell them to get me booked on some of these things (laughs) because i miss dancing and i don't think a lot of choreographers would put themselves in that position i think a lot of the times you think well i'm above that 
I, I can't do that anymore. It's like when I watch people like Normani go and just do Rihanna's Fenty show as just a dancer and not yeah. sing. I'm like, yes, go do that. I just feel like sometimes we get uh, pigeonholed into certain positions and we think that we can't do other things. It's funny, I, I'll ask dancers, you know, social media people, if they'll do something like, oh, I don't do that anymore. Sorry, that's not, I have to ask my manager. And I'm like, ew, <laughs> into what have these social media monster children turned into? Um, I miss when it was just like, I can make my own decisions and yeah. do what my heart wants to do rather than what's good for optics. Mm. So yeah. When you were being, a, when you were in the UK as a creative director, you kind of, not you took, well, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say you took it on, but you, you became a celebrity here. You know, you became a household name. You got so much airtime. You were in the tabloids. You know, that's how, that's how I learned who you were. And then I was like, I want to work for him. Like that was the, you became kind of like the pinnacle of dance for the UK. Um, and as a dancer, it was the goal. It was what we trained for, you know, we'd be in two excess and Cisco would be like, if you want to work for Brian, you've got to be like this. Like, and that was what we aimed for. Then you took over this, this not character, but you became a celebrity and you did like a uh, celebrity get me out of here. What was that like to go from being a dancer? Obviously you were a child star, which had that fame. And then you said that, you know, you always wanted more attention as an adult. You went from coming here to be a creative director to a celebrity to go on a TV show where people watched you 24 hours a day. Like what, what toll did that take on you? Um, I mean, the only toll that it took on, I, I love to work. So the work aspect of working on the show was always a challenge because you had to turn hopefuls into stars overnight. We were putting Which on you did. award show. Well, yeah, we definitely did. You look One day of the stars that have made it, um, your one D's, your fifth harmonies. And we definitely did a great job. Um, but turning them into weekly celebrities and putting on uh, EMA style, Brit award style performances, sometimes up to 14 or 16 a week in the US 20 on our week one of our premiere episode in the US putting 20 of those on a week with zero rehearsal time was definitely exhausting. And that's just the, the visuals of it. That's not even the creative behind what went into it. So it was a daunting job. The celebrity aspect of what came along with it was not what I was thinking about at the time. It was just something that came along with it. And I would um, laugh in the street when people would notice me um, because they're like, you're that dance guy. <laughs> <laughs> And then it started turning into them saying my name and it was always really positive. So um, I was grateful for that. I loved it in the UK. They were so good to me. The press was not as good to me. They were, ever since my role switched from judge to creative director, the press was, was really rough on me. And uh, they just had it in their heads that I was a certain type of way, which is why I wanted to go on, I'm a celebrity. Um, to set the record straight. And my PR team over there was like, it'll be great for you. It'll be the best thing. They'll get to show you as you are. And I still to date have not watched it. I've seen little clips of it, but um, I was told what it was. And I asked all of these different things. Well, did they show this? Did they show that? And they didn't show any of that. They 
knew who they wanted me to be on that show. I was a certain character that they were wanting me to play. So that's definitely a part of me. Like mm. I know how to back at someone if I have to, but I also know how to be normal and I know how to have normal conversations. And the way that it was edited, they showed that one side of me. And I'm not complaining about the edit because I know the way reality TV is and it's mm -hmm. what I signed up for. It was just a shame that they did the stereotypical thing. They were like, oh, he's going to be the gay, bitchy American. Yay. And I gave them just what they wanted. <laughs> and in, um, in Britain, they love an American to go against, right? Yeah, no, they love it. So it was what it was. I would never have changed the experience. I, the outcome of how I was perceived, um, obviously I don't like that, but the experience that I had while I was in there, I wouldn't change because it taught me so much about myself and my endurance and what I'm capable of and how strong I am and I didn't think I was because I'm gay. And I I grew up in a time when gay was not okay and I was called faggot and just a, a pansy and a sissy, all of these things that I was called. You get called enough names, you begin to believe them and you begin to feel like that's who you are. So I never thought of myself as this strong masculine person who was capable of these things. I was like, well, I'm gay, I can't, I'm not into sports. That must mean I'm just feminine and weak. Then I get out into this setting, this rough setting, and I found out that I'm a fighter, that I, when it came to the challenges, physical challenges, that I wouldn't give up on anything. I lit the fire in the camp without a lighter. <laughs> the first yeah. night I got in, I was cooking in the camp. I was like gutting things and sleeping in dirt, not having my fragrance, not grooming, not having my fashion, showering in a freezing cold waterfall shitting with my feet sticking out like it was so horrible bugs crawling all over me and just knowing that i could get through that i came out of there with a sense of masculinity that i had never felt before and um just gender stereotypes now even looking back since that experience it's just horrible that all these gender stereotypes even exist that men should be this and women should be this when i believe that we are all capable of every single part of you know the human spectrum men can be delicate women can be strong and the word masculine and feminine i've got a huge issue with those words in general mm -hmm. just because being told as a dancer, you have to dance masculine. I'm like, what does that even mean? And you have to dance feminine. And I've gotten into so many debates with other choreographers about that because why should we have to dance anything? If you want me to do something, if you're having me dance for a certain role, tell me this is the role of a straight man. Okay. And I want him to dance like a warrior. Okay, got it. Give, <laughs> Not, give more description not dance more masculine. If you want me to play a role, I'll play a role. But if we're just in a dance class and you're teaching me choreography, I'm gonna exude who I am inside. And mm -hmm. if it looks more quote unquote feminine, which is why I hate that word, then so be it. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. my essence coming out. Mm. Why do I have to be a, a female to move like that? Why can't a female move like a strong quote unquote cis male? Um, I blame working for Melanie Martinez <laughs> for all of this eye-opening that I've had over the past two and a half years because um, 
I've worked with non-binary dancers. I've mm -hmm. uh, learned a lot about, you know, gender nonconformity, and it has just completely changed the way I think about everything. And it makes sense of so much of my childhood being a kid that grew up and just you see gay and you hear gay and you think it's a certain thing. And mm. all of a sudden you have to start acting and talking and looking a certain way. Um, yeah, sorry, that was a tangent, but being in <laughs> taught me a lot about um, my, my, I, I call it masculinity, but I wish that there was just another word for that. That's why I always think I'm like, I don't know how to replace those words because they're the words I've known for 30 years. Yeah. You know, like, I wish there was a committee that could just come and replace words that don't serve us well and that are offensive to other people. But that experience definitely was jarring for me in terms of my celebrity status. And uh, I don't think that it defines me. It definitely doesn't define me because I have social media, which is what I believe really defines me. And anyone who does follow me on social media and can hear me talk and get to know me and who I really am, they know who me, who I am and mm. what I'm all about. So that is the, the beauty of social media. Um, if you're authentic and you're putting your authentic self out there, which I have a problem doing anything other than that, and, you know, I do interviews with people and I am honest to a fault. I yeah. say everything that I have to say and I'm unapologetically me and I will always be that way. I will always overshare, <laughs> <laughs> which again, I say is to a fault, you know, all the Britney mm -hmm. fans that hate me because um, there are so many that love me. Um, she was just such a big part of my uh choreographic and creative beginnings that I always have to go back and talk about things because they are such a pivotal part in my life, just like she's going to go back and talk about her landmark moments in her career. They're also landmark moments in my career. Mm -hmm. And I am obliged to speak about them. I have the right to speak about them. Um, so for all of those people who hate me for speaking about them, they can suck it. Nice. <laughs> that is my life and I'm not apologizing for it. And you shouldn't. Um, in your career, what are some of the hardest things you've had to overcome? Whether it be on stage, a creative moment, uh, working with an artist, coming up with a, the final vision, which was impossible to achieve. Are there any which really stand out to you that you didn't think were possible, but you made um, it My hardest parts in my career, um, I think when I was younger, dancing, you know, as an adult, I didn't have the body type I wanted. I wanted to be muscular and I was very skinny and I was watching the jobs that I wanted to book be handed away to people who had bodies mm -hmm. and sometimes were not very talented at the auditions, but I was watching them get booked based off of their face and body. And that was upsetting to me because I was like, well, I can't really control this. I'm working out, but I'm still skinny and this mm -hmm. is my face, <laughs> like it or not. So I really was discouraged in that time frame, but I kept working and I was getting jobs. I was not unemployed. I just was not happy with the jobs I was getting. Mm -hmm. I wanted the other jobs. So that was a tough period of time for me, but I kept working out and little by little, my body got bigger and I started booking jobs that I was proud of. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen and, you do shirtless jobs for Janet. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it got better, yeah. but I wanted it faster. So I wasn't as patient with some of that. Um, probably my times working for Simon on X Factor, those were the most stressful 
in dramatic times for me. He was just extremely demanding as a boss. And um, I, after working for him for so many years, I would try and be in his head. And as I'm creating with my team, I'm overthinking things will suggest something and I'll say, no, you won't like that. So you're constantly slapping yourself down when you're in an organic process where you should just be letting things flow, but mm -hmm. you're thinking from a negative standpoint. So it, that definitely was hard for me, you know, going on creating concept number 1080. Dude, I remember being in rehearsals. We did, I'm sure it was 2010 or 11. Uh, it was the share and One Direction year. And I did oh. the semi-final and the final for you. And it was my first ever time working for you. And I remember learning like six versions of every single dance because they wanted you to show a camera version in the rehearsal studio, then a stage version, then they'd want it different. I remember the night before we did Cher, uh, Tiana did um, Boom Shake the Room. Yeah. And whipped my hair. And the night, and the, yeah, and we rehearsed like hours. And then the night before it was like cut. Well, and we had a set piece. Yeah. Simon loved and he took it for one direction the school wardrobes that well there was this bridge over the top that uh -huh. we were he liked it so he was like no this number doesn't work shares number change it change the it. school lockers and then it freed up a set piece so he was like oh give that to 1d so we had to then change one direction staging and it was always like that it was always like that every week i would deliver something that i would think was perfection and he would hate it and then we'd have to change it so that was just a, a high stress situation it was also a great learning experience because i was able to see what i'm capable of under pressure i always go back to rebecca ferguson when he scrapped her song and all of a sudden gave her an up tempo and it was after we had already done all of the rehearsals and we ran in the back room i remember they had no and i had wardrobe get bin bags and that's when we poked everyone's holes through bin bags and got tape and started taping them and creating these dresses out of these bin bags choreographed the number in like two seconds and then they ran on stage and did it so those are priceless moments but those are moments that like gave me an ulcer um i've had those moments also working for other artists where the pressure is just really high on what is supposed to be delivered. And no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try, the artist doesn't deliver. And it always goes back to you. And mm. it's like, oh, that just didn't hit. And you're like, but watch it with the assistant. <laughs> yeah. That's your job as a choreographer is to make the artist look good. And you work your butt off and you try and you hope. And then there's just those times where it just doesn't happen. Mm. So those are the moments I think that have been the hardest for me to cope with and to deal with career-wise. Um, yeah, I think those are the things. I feel like when people, and I get it quite a lot, like people go, I want to be a choreographer. And I think that they, they maybe overlook the skills required to do that. And they just think that I just need to be good at making, I, re I make really good choreography, you know? Yeah, that's steps. Um, so they are step makers, which step makers are great for um, hiring to be on a choreography team. I think that that's like a, a huge starting path for a new choreographer. And that's probably the best way for them to go. There are choreographers 
um, who are in charge of supervising choreographer, like a head choreographer on a job, where they bring in team members just to spice up the project that they're on. You know, I would always do that on X Factor. Yeah. On X Factor, my title is supervising choreographer. In the beginning, my first years on the show, I was choreographing everything, and Jerry Reeve was my assistant, and it was just the two of us, and we would be in his apartment making up everything. And it got to the point where I'm like, I cannot be the creative director of this show and still be worrying about making up all the dance steps. So I became supervising choreographer. I hired a team of choreographers underneath me. One of them was head choreographer and they were the one that could make sure that these younger people who were newer, they would patch together their steps. Um, you know, I had Kimmy Taylor, Kimmy was there. She was a like, contributing choreographer for a while. Um, Tiana was the one who was there to really oversee and guide these people. Cisco was in there for me for a while. I would bring in Ashley Wallen to do numbers because Ashley was epic. And I knew that whenever I brought Ashley in, he would deliver exactly what I needed and I wouldn't have to change a single step. Um, and I loved being able to bring people in as contributing choreographers and sort of give them their start. And that was Kimmy, what she was for me, Dean Lee, when I first brought Dean in on the show. And then you look now at those people and they are massively successful. Mm. Um, so I, I do believe that there is a progression as a choreographer. And so yes, these people who say, I wanna be a choreographer, I make up really good eight counts. That's the start. Mm -hmm. That's definitely the start, but you need to start working underneath someone who can teach you the full craft of what choreography entails and how it works for stage versus camera versus commercial and music video and how staging plays a role in all of this and what it's like when you're around an artist versus around an artist who does not dance or if it is just the dancers who are on stage at that moment and how one movement needs to guide us into the next movement if it is not something that you have a camera script for how the eye can be led from one place to another. There's just a lot of things that you learn as you're going through, you know, the training process of being a choreographer. And then your eyes are wide open and you realize that, wow, I, I only knew how to choreograph eight counts facing a mirror. <laughs> I didn't really know how to put the whole vision together. And then there's the other scope. There are the visionaries who just get it, who are a breath of fresh air and they get the artistry of it all. Everyone's path is different. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it was always about growth and learning and working underneath other people to soak in as much knowledge as I possibly could so that when the time came, I was ready to really excel at the project I was on. Mm. And then as a choreographer, what, what do you look for in dancers when you're hiring them? Obviously, besides just being able to execute choreography. Um, and then what do you dislike with dancers? Um, for me, what always draws me to a dancer when they step into an audition or into a class of mine is star quality. <clears throat> star quality isn't necessarily your looks. It's that passion and confidence that you exude. It's that, well, I hate to use the word, the phrase X factor. <laughs> it, <laughs> thing that you just are magnetically drawn to that's the initial thing that mm. pulled me in and i am known for liking hot messes <laughs> and my choreography team looks at me crazy sometimes when i hire dancers and they're like are uh did you really hire this person and i'm like yes 
they have something special. Now we need to figure out how to make it work. Um, and then uh, they would put them in the back corner and I would walk into rehearsal and I would pull that person right up to the front and I would look at my choreographer and I would say, simplify it because I need this person up here because they're the person that the camera's going to fall in love with. They're the person that the producer is going to fall in love with. They're the person that the director is going to want to put the camera on. So that's when you have to get out of your dancer mind and realize that it's not about how high their arch is and how high their kick is and how fast and crisp they are on the shungagaga, which is all the stuff that I love in class. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to being on stage, it's about how can this production look the most expensive as possible. So that's when you really have to have an eye for casting as well as not just liking dancers mm-hmm. for the steps that they do. But my eye initially goes to those dancers. But then I also need to have dancers who are adaptable and fast. And that being said, how I'll hire those people, those um, loose cannons, mm-hmm. I'll give them the chance. And if they don't rise to the occasion, then I don't hire them back. And a lot of the time, if they don't rise to the occasion and I know it's not gonna happen for the actual show, they will get the chop at rehearsal and I will have my trusty dancers on speed dial who will have to be down to the studio in a minute to learn the whole thing for the show that day. How many times do you think you've had to do that? Countless, (laughs) countless. Um, But what is also, like calming for me is that I have then hired those dancers again because they've come back to the audition for me and they've shown me that they've grown and have improved. So I never would count someone out. I always believe in second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Um, I I just like to see people get there and achieve their goal. Um, There's nothing better to me than than triumph, someone championing. Um, Yeah, I, I root for people. Hardcore, probably to a fault. Um, That in friendship too. I could be stabbed in the back 25 times and at time 26, I turn around and I'm like, have you changed? (laughs) It's the Gemini in me. Me too. I just want to please everyone. I think my birthday is the day before yours. Are you the 27th? 27th and you're 28th, right? And then I think Uh, Jay Ravel is like the 26th, something like that. He's right by us too. Marco Da Silva is the 30th. Of course. We're all in the same Mm -hmm. boat. Um, So... I I need dancers that are on top of it. I have dancers reverse the choreography in the audition so that I can see if they can do it on both sides so I see how fast their brain works. Um, I need well-rounded dancers. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to be like technically adequate, but you have to be able to do the basics so that if I give you some technical choreography in rehearsal, you're able to do it. And I'm not having to teach you how to do a pirouette. So you have to have the basics. You have to be well-rounded. You have to pick up choreography fast. You have to know how to perform. You have to know awareness around you. You have to be able to work in a formation and uh, just be adaptable and be a superstar on top of it. And I will say to date my favorite dancers to work with on camera, are my dancers in the UK. There is a sense of artistry and awareness of their like essence that it's just unparalleled. Mm-hmm. The way that they work the camera, your Katie Collins, um, who else? The list can go on and Jenny. on. Jenny Griffin or Jenny Griffith, um, Layla, Kifa, 
um, Pamela. Keith is on your side now. Yeah, Keith is over here, but she will always be my British. Yeah. Um, Pamela, there's like my British girls. They just, they get it. They get it. I could trust them. And that was something that it was built and created over years. Just DG. And then all of my guys, of course, you, Malik, uh, Nick Gertz, James Collins, uh, who else? BB, Jay. Um, it's, I just had a, a really great group of dancers. And it, it was sort of that group that everyone had to live up to when I came to the States to, to start working on TV shows like that over here. The bar was set really high. Um, so I, I will always love going back to the UK because there's just something that's, that's bred through dancers there that isn't bred here in America. Now, American dancers, they can do anything you ask mm -hmm. of them. They are like on the count, on the step, and they, they know how to work a camera. They do all of it, but there's a harshness on top of it. It's really aggressive and hard. And I talked to Giannis Marshall about this um, all the time. There's just something that is different. Mm. Um, I wish that we could uh, learn it here. And, and there are some dancers here who have that. And I'm not saying that they don't. Um, uh, well, I found the difference between here and between the UK and the States was in the States, you have so much opportunity, right? So everything is like at an arm's length, like everything is reachable. Like yeah. you're, you're walking next to a celebrity. There's a, a, a Lady Gaga audition or an Usher audition. There's always an audition like coming up. There's always something. Whereas in the UK, there's not as much opportunity, you know? So when someone like yourself would come here uh, with a high profile who's worked for artists which are unreachable for us, I feel like it's such a big moment that everyone like levels up for it, you know? Because it's, not, it's not a weekly thing. Yeah, there's just a, a certain, it's a hustle is what I see from European dancers, British dancers. It, it's a different world taking the tube, taking the subway, having a bag on your back, In the doing rain. that hustle. It's just, it's a different thing. There's a fight mentality. And I think New York dancers have that. Hmm. New York dancers are a lot more similar to European dancers because it's that New York grind and hustle. Whereas on the West coast, it's just a little bit more comfortable in the cars and driving around. And this is more of a social scene. Whereas I see all these other places, it's your individuals and you're out there on your own battle and you got to fight for it. So I think that that does play a role. I think there's a certain level of maturity that comes in to play with European dancers. Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. Do you, do you have any favorite moments in your career that stand out where you're like, you know, when you can go really back into it and be like, this was, this is it, like I've made it, this is the moment? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there have been landmarks all through, peppered through my career. Um, I remember just being a kid and working with Michael Jackson, who as a kid I idolized. Um, and being able to be on stage with him was one of those incredible moments that I felt like I was living through a dream as it was going on. And not even so much 
when I was with him on the job and when we were shooting, but it was more so the audition, just being in that room and auditioning. And I was like, oh my God, I am auditioning for Michael Jackson right now. Like, wow. Like at that moment I had made it and I hadn't even booked the job yet. And then (laughs) after booking the job and being handed the lyric sheet and us sitting down to sing the song, um, Will You Be There? and singing this song with this group of dancers that we had all been booked on the job, that was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, yeah, I've I've really made it. (laughs) And I'm 15 at the time. (laughs) So that was a moment for me um, uh, when I choreographed my first tour for Britney and I did Wade brought me in, Wade Robson brought me in to do the creative process of writing the show with him that he conceived. And I was there and uh, I got credit on this as uh, creative segments or some select segments co-created by, (laughs) which was a huge thing. I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting here writing a show. I've never done this before. Um, And standing back at opening night in the booth watching the show live that for me was like oh whoa oh my god this thing that started on paper is now magical and the audience is going crazy for this and this was just ideas Mm -hmm. that we put down on paper so that was a wow moment for me um uh so you think you can dance was a wow moment for me and it wasn't even when I started the show, because at that point they're like, okay, it's the American Idol team and they're making a dance version. And my manager submitted me for it. I had a meeting and in that meeting, they told me the job was mine. And it was like, oh my God. Cause I had just before that had a meeting to be a judge on Dancing with the Stars in the States. And um, it was basically down to the wire and I was told, you know, they're going to go a different direction. And I was like, damn. So I was really upset. So when So You Think You Can Dance happened, I was really excited about that. But um, it wasn't so much when I was judging the show and doing the show. It was when I started going out in public. And I remember walking down the aisle of a plane and people were whispering and pointing. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm Brittany. <laughs> all of a sudden, I was like, and, and I had been noticed from being a dancer from other mm-hmm. things. This was different because it wasn't you're the backup dancer for so and so. It was you are you. And I noticed you for being you. So that was an amazing moment for me. And then uh, coming to the UK, I did, I judged a show called Grease is the Word. And that was my first show that I judged in the UK. And while I was judging the show, I got a call from uh, someone on the team and they said, we've got another show that we're really interested in bringing you on as a judge. We're going to send some DVDs over to your hotel. If you could take a peek at it and let us know if you're interested. And I got the DVDs and I pulled it out and I put it in and I'm watching it and it's Leona Lewis singing. And I'm like, what is this show? This girl's amazing. And I literally, within two days, watched every DVD. And I remember getting to the end of it and I was crying (laughs) when she won. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. This show is incredible. And I called them, I was like, yes, what do you want me to do? They were like, we want you, you're gonna replace Louis Walsh as a judge. And I was like, what? (laughs) 
And I was like, sign me up. And immediately I was brought back and they did the judge reveal and I step out of this limo and people are going crazy. And then they have me on this rooftop balcony and there's planes flying overhead and we're at this stadium and we're waving down at the people. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, this is what this has all been a build up to. Mm -hmm. But then you take me a month later and I'm told we're bringing Louis back and we want to switch a position. So literally the biggest moment in my life, in my career was snatched out of my hands. And that's to date the most devastating thing to have to go through. Um, so it must, it must have been really hard to deal with as well to still then work on the show. Oh, it was, you know, like every, I guess, every day seeing that seat where you were meant yeah. to sit. Yeah. And I'm sitting now like adjacent of the seat off of, cause Simon wanted me to sit right next you to sat him. On, you sat on the other side, right? So Louis was there and yours was over here. And then I'm right behind Simon so that Simon can look over at me and give me notes during the show and I can run backstage and give my notes and my corrections. And he's always nodding to me for approval. Did they do it right? Okay, good. Now I know what I can say. Um, so it was definitely a, a tough pill to swallow. The only settlement that I had was that my money remained the same. I was still getting the same Win. fee which was a win for every other creative director in the world because that established the rate for that position because at that time, creative director over a television show such as X Factor didn't exist. They didn't have that position on Idol. They didn't have that position. The voice didn't exist. Uh, X Factor globally didn't have that position. And after that, once they saw the success that it had on X Factor UK, they implemented it into every reality show. And that set a standard for what a creative director was supposed to make. So um, I picked up my face off the floor and I tried to take ego out of it. And it was a tough pill to swallow forever. <laughs> but um, it all worked out the way it was supposed to. I mean, that position as creative director I learned so much on the job doing that, and it, it helped me out in every aspect of my career. Mm. And um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't change it because <laughs> I wish that it hadn't happened like that. I wish that I had maintained my judge position and had been a consulting creative director. That would have been great if I could have- In an ideal world. Positions in an ideal world. Um, but, you know, it taught me a lot about resilience. It taught me a lot about ego. It taught me how to pick my face up off the floor and nothing, nothing would ever hit me and damage me in the way that that did. Mm. I know that I probably wouldn't have gotten through bad press from I'm a Celebrity had I not gone through that bad press prior. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really believe like knockbacks, they you you either grow from them or they defeat you, right? And if you can grow from it, then it serves you a purpose. Well, and it's also a pivot. You know, I thought I was going on a specific path at that point, and that just completely derailed me. At that time, I was working with artists in the music industry, not mm -hmm. fake artists <laughs> on a reality <laughs> I was working with real artists who were signed with real budgets and working in this reality TV, you know, the music industry is all about contacts and it's about building these relationships and flourishing. And I stepped away from the music industry completely to do this reality TV world to a detriment. It pulled me away from all the artists that I was working for. And sadly, when you're away from an artist that you're working for, they hire a new team and it's, 
pretty tough to get rid of a team. Mm -hmm. So um, it definitely changed things for me, but it pulled me into the TV realm and that pulled me into the TV realm in the States, which ended up being X Factor UK and ended up being America's Got Talent. And then I did Britain's Got Talent and it helped me work as a producer on other shows in America. So it definitely opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to direction, which I never really thought I wanted to direct. And I ended up uh, directing music videos and directing stage shows. So, um, I may not have been in the same position, you know, I'm directing now for Melanie Martinez mm -hmm. and I may not be in that position or have been in that position had I not gone through yeah. those. So it's important just to know that all those setbacks, the knockdowns, as bad as they feel at the time, um, you've just got to figure out why you're being knocked down and mm. where you're being knocked to. Mm. So say in an ideal world, February comes, the rona has gone, we're all back to normal. Where do you, what do you see for yourself? What in a, you know, if you could create the perfect scenario, what's the future for Brian Freeman? Um, the truth is I don't care. <laughs> that is what this pandemic has done for me. It has made me not care about work. It has made me not focus on career. It has made me truly coast, which is something that I, I don't do and I, I've never been able to do. Um, yeah, I don't care what I do next as long as it enables me to spend time at home, mm -hmm. as long as I don't have to give up all of this greatness that I've acquired mm -hmm. through this time. And I've realized that the greatness is not monetary. The greatness comes with family and friends. And even if friends is just in group text and on Zoom, because that's how it's been. But I've still been able to spend time talking to people. Um, it comes with sleep, getting a real sleep schedule and just having time to live. And that's something that it, it was a gift. Mm -hmm. So... Who knows what's next? I'm not ambitiously hustling. Um, when I get back, when things happen again, opportunities, if they come and they feel right, I will take them and I'll make sure that I am protecting my sanity first and foremost over everything else. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like the, the lockdown for me, everyone being on pause was the nicest thing. It's the first time where we've all, I felt equal to everyone. Where ah. it's like, there's not someone on a job that I want to be on. There's not an audition that I can't get to because of something. There's not, you know, no one's looking at each other going, I want to do that because we're all in the exact same place. And it was nice because it, it allowed me to put my guard down and go, what have I missed for the past five months in my life? What are the parts of it that I miss? Do I miss these jobs? Do I miss traveling every single day to a show? No, not really. So mm -hmm. do I want to keep doing it? You know, like 10 years into my career, is this still the path that I want to chase? Yeah. And that was the nice thing that I've taken away from this tragic shit scenario that we've been in is just going, okay, what do I miss and what do I want to add? And now is the time where I can make that adaption. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it, it might sound really like depressing <laughs> that I don't have a plan, but it's the first time where I haven't had to have a plan. Like I'm going to work. Everything's going to go back to normal again. I'm going to be busy. Life is going to return. I just want it to return in a different way. And I am going to soak up every ounce of this that I possibly can because time 
is a blessing and time is fleeting. And um, I've loved not having to get dressed up a lot. I've loved that I haven't had to concern myself with spending money on clothes. My forehead moves because I'm <laughs> Botox. Because I'm going to spend money on Botox. I'm not anyone. I'm not worried about my appearance as much. I still am because I don't want to walk around the house. Like I have a husband to look good for, but like, I'm not as concerned with my appearance. Like all of these things are good, healthy things. How are you coping without 24 hour fitness? Um, well, we have dubbed our house Friedquinox because my gym is Equinox. Mm -hmm. So you used to be with 24. Oh yeah. Well, I still am. I, um, kept that membership because it's like, I pay pennies for it because I got a lifetime membership eons ago, but I'm doing good. I didn't think I'd be good, but I got, you know, some free weights and I have my mat and my ab roller thing. And now with Apple fitness, it comes on my TV, it connects to my watch and people do workouts. So I'm good. I think you have to rip the bandaid off and sort of figure out how you can turn your home into your place of activity, whether it's dance or yoga or Pilates, fitness. Um, But you have to do that because the worst thing that we can do for ourselves is completely let ourselves go. (laughs) And and I think that we all deserve to let ourselves go a little bit, Mm -hmm. but you got to find that balance. And if you, you'll know when it's the right time, when you're like, okay, have crossed the line that then it's time to get some activity and to burn some calories to do a little stretching whatever it is that you need to do so that your body doesn't become susceptible to injuries mm-hmm. um and it's different for everyone but yeah i'm doing good it's you know i have my good weeks months and then i fall off again and that's just being human i don't think anyone's perfect and anyone has the right oh, recipe no. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that's what I've enjoyed about this is like, I'm not shirtless every night. This is fantastic. <laughs> Can I eat some chocolate? This is a win. Yep. I, right before we started, I had a truffle. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I have my I have my um my in-laws over and we ate nice food and played card games. And I was like, you all need to go now. <laughs> yep. Well, that's win. what I did. I, I drove to Arizona, which is, it's a six hour drive from my house in LA and my husband and I drove with our puppies and, we spent Christmas there with my parents and we played cards and we watched movies and we baked and we ate. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be normally doing that, a 10 day trip and then being able to come home and not jump right back into work, mm. but to be able to come home and rest and relax and unpack. And it's just, this is never gonna happen again. You know, no. what pandemics are once in a century. So we are, not blessed to have to live through this one, but we are, you know, this is such a pivotal time. And I think everyone's going to really be more appreciative of their freedoms and their family and their time. And we're the first pandemic to ever have to deal with social media. And hopefully it changes our outlook on social media. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can just try and be a little bit nicer to each other after Mm -hmm. this. That's my goal. But there's always keyboard warriors who are out there to offend. They're just bored. Just don't, so, read, it. Just don't read it. <laughs> don't read it. That's, that's my advice to everyone. And it's my advice to myself. And that's all we can do is just keep trying to be better and enjoy our lives. For sure. Um, I ask this to every dancer or person who has, has an interest in dance. If aliens came 
from space now with this little gun and they say I'm gonna zap you and take you all away but you have to give me one human on earth that represents dance in any shape or form who would you who would you offer to be like this is our this is our savior living or dead oh you can have one of each okay um Gene Kelly, nice, would be my my past, and this is really difficult. I know, right? Um, oh wow, that's hard. That's really hard because there's so many different elements of dance, different genres, mm -hmm. people that I admire in different genres. And I chose mine because I use the person who can do everything at such a fantastic level that I love to do. You know, so mine was Misha Gabriel, because I feel like for me covers the spectrum of all the different, I don't want to say genres of dance, but areas of dance that I love at such a high level. So he was mine. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is so loaded because I have so many different assistants and so many people over time who have danced for me. Um, but I'm going to use the inspiration of what you just said because i think versatility is key in this and i'm gonna have to go with taja riley nice um she's one of my babies but she is so skilled and equipped in her technical dancing from modern to contemporary and lyrical. And then her hip hop skill is just beyond mm -hmm. her artistry is there. So I think she'd be someone who I could trust to teach those aliens her ways. Indeed. Um, Indeed. How she's not an artist, I don't know. Like <laughs> well, how she is not. And yeah. she's music out, but you know, same reason. She's a jack of all trades. And I know. <laughs> how I spoke of myself earlier, Taja is the same way but she has a project right now that's brewing that hopefully the world will get to see very soon um which celebrates all the magic that she has to offer okay i'm gonna tell her she's been sacrificed <laughs> yep she's, a, she's our savior bye girl bye, bye felicia um dude thank you so much for your time this has been a, a pleasure um is there anything that you'd like to ask the people to look for or to check out? Anything you've got coming up? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have too much stuff going on right now. Last thing I need to do is plug anything. Um, I just say, wash your hands, wear a mask, stay inside. Don't see people that you don't need to be seeing and we'll get through this. And then I can't wait to see all of you once we can see each other again. That's all I have to say. I'll take it. Dude, thank you so much. Um, I wish you and the family all the best. Enjoy your time with your giant puppies. And say hello to Danny.
I will. Thank All you. All the best, man. Thank you so much for your time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Ins and Outs podcast. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends and family. One love. Peace. The Ins and Outs podcast with your host, Kane.